Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week's episode was recorded at YSA Melbourne's inaugural Science Cafe series from late July 2015. We'll be here from Monash University Physics Lecturer Dr Eric Thrain about his fantastic word with LIGO, the Gravitational Wave Detector. This week our conversation turns towards explanations of science and how you explain difficult concepts, as well as some of the complexities about building detectors in space. Tune in now for our Cafe Science Series finale. In our final Cafe Science segment, we tackle some of the bigger questions about how you actually explain a lot of scientific content. We talk about some of the legendary science communicators and the challenges that you face when lecturing or trying to explain and teach subjects, the lies that you may have to tell or how you actually have to make an approximation of knowledge and how a lot of science actually is about finding working models that are applied to specific areas. We also talk about some of the really technical complexities about building an amazing gravitational wave detector in space and, you know, if that's even feasible some of the challenges of and applications of control systems to big physics experiments. So prepare yourself for another exciting science cafe in our final segment involving Dr. Eric Thrain from Monash University and hope the ambiance noise of the cafes in the background goes along with your cup of tea and coffee as you enjoy this week's discussion from our science cafe series recorded in July 2015. Obviously, when you discuss science for enough time, the conversation generally turns to one of the most famous science communicators out there, who has a lot of experience and is very well known, mostly for being a bit eccentric sometimes in his explanations, and that is, of course, the lovable Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist, and generally considered one of the better scientific communicators of the 20th century. Richard Feynman was also a prolific writer, speaker, as well as educator who believe passionately in science communication. So he's given us a, an enormous volume of work of his to consider. We'll talk a bit about that to start things off and move into more science communication challenges later on. I like Feynman's ability to explain complex things. Uh, I've read Six Easy Pieces, which is just um, took um, the major physics theories um, six of them from um, Lectures in Physics, which is his main text that has all his lectures. Uh, and then Six Easy Pieces is it's just really one. And it's got things about... talks about special relativity for a bit. Um, I think it covers um, a bit of chemistry as well. I can't remember exactly what it covers, but things like nuclear physics and all the topics in the couple it's, it's, it's really cool. My favourite one is his explanation, if you YouTube it. It's from an interview where somebody asks him to explain magnetism. Oh, is this the one where he just goes on the right page of what is an explanation? Yes. I could tell you this, but I'd be wrong, and I could tell you this, and I'd still be wrong. And it'd still be wrong. And then I could tell you this, and you won't understand it, and it would still be wrong. <laughs> One of the problems we asked Dr. Thrain about that he experiences in his everyday lecturing life is how you explain really complicated physics problems to a lay audience. In fact, how do you dumb down something? Is that even allowed? Is that okay? And he explained to us an educational concept or a scientific concept called the domain of utility, which we'll go on to define as something being accurate and valid 
for a certain domain or application. So he's going to explain to us a bit now how it works and where he applies it for his lecture. It's just has a domain. Okay. It's right. So a lot of concepts we teach in introductory physics are, you know, you can, you can teach them. They're just, uh, it's not the whole story, but they're not. They're not, they're not, they're not incorrect. They're just not everything. Yes. Okay. You're correct, there's several decimal places, but yeah. all, all physics is, uh, is a model, so you're always, uh, and, and you see this, uh, if you pursue graduate study in physics, uh, there's a whole wealth of uh, theoretical physics that involves coming up with a, what are called effective theories, especially effective field theories in particle physics. And these are descriptions of you know, things like semiconductors where you postulate the existence of particles. And we know that in some sense these particles don't exist in quotes for the microphone because fundamental, not fun- fundamental particles, but they are things that behave like particles as you look at phonons, uh, for example, excitations in, in crystalline structures, how they behave like particles. We can assign them names and, and give them properties. But it's, it's really just a description for these excitations in crystals. And we know that if you dig down deep enough, the crystal is not made of these it's not a fundamental properties made out of quarks and leptons. Just everything is. But, but it's a model. It's a model and it helps. It's a useful model. And, and, and no one criticizes uh, professional physicists. Oh, that's just uh, an effective field theory. It's not a real field theory. So, you know, by the same token, it's fine uh, to teach uh, introductory material. It's, it, has its, it has its place. I think that's a really, really interesting and a good way of putting it, like a effective theory. Like it's effective in a certain domain. It's almost very mathematical about like saying yes, which almost it's it's not. It's probably the best explanation for the way our whole education system is structured. Or well, what we're taught from everything from mathematics upwards is effective inside a certain domain. You're told that you can't add less than zero until you learn or until you learn that the domain of all goes beyond natural numbers. Or you can't divide by a whole number until you learn about uh, integers and so on. And then you go beyond into a complex plane and then from there as you sort of your domain expands out. And that that's a really good way of approaching uh, having an effective theory that works in a really it's a model that explains a bit really nicely. You can actually solve problems with another shape, which is why you do it. And make predictions rather than having to have the biggest perfect if, you, if you're trying to swat a mosquito you don't fly the bazooka so no, <laughs> there's the right tools and the right problem hey, I, 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 never, quite interesting. <laughs> I never thought about science actually going down to that uh, that level of application which is sometimes you have the perception that science is more about finding the answer rather than a answer that works well well, so if you want to get a little bit philosophical about it as well, there's this notion of what is, what is you know, the nature of reality. And there, there's this, this comes up a little bit in fundamental physics. I'm sure you run into it all the time. Well, but, you know, what, what, is that, what does physics even aspire to? Is it a, a, a description of reality that agrees with all experiments that have been done? Or is it truth beyond that? And if... You know, if there's if there's just agreement and the ability to predict uh, predict things, then all any theory is ever is an, an effective theory. It's just something that it's a system of laws that makes predictions that are in accord with uh, with, 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 with experiments. And with and, and the ultimate goal is for all experiments ever, and that would be the grand ultimate theory. But but even then, you could say, is that but is that really how the universe works? And another philosopher could say, does that question even make sense? 
these are now getting out of <laughs> tangible science. These, these are, you know, these are interesting things to think about. Is that is that um, is that something that type of curiosity around those questions that drove you into this area of physics in the first place, or was it something more mundane? So, I actually did, when I was an undergraduate, I majored in physics and philosophy. I am in experience. So, yes, I am interested in deep questions, and, and, and philosophy is, is great, but what I like about physics is that I can answer questions. Philosophy is great at asking questions. I shouldn't be too hard on philosophy. Um, and I love philosophy, but, but it, physics has a better track record historically, and as science in general does, and it answers things. So many things that ultimately great scientists prove were originally philosophical questions. So, what's the fate of the universe, for example, or what's, where, where did everything come from? Could have been a, at one point of natural philosophy, but it's now we have quantitative answers. And that's and that we were just discussing about the origins and the words, the definitions for science in other languages often make reference to the natural philosophy angle of the original aspect of science for the environment. Now, ostensibly, what Dr. Eric Thrain was talking to us about here at the Science Cafe was primarily the LIGAL experiment, which he's heavily involved in studying, which mostly looks at trying to detect gravitational waves. Now, the LIGAL experiment, as he explained to us in his talk and a couple of episodes back on Lagrange Point, is involves a massive piece of connected pipe work laying on the surface. But what have you tried to replicate it or make it bigger? Because obviously, as soon as you make a scientific experiment bigger, it obviously becomes more powerful and better. Now, that's true for some experiments, certainly, but it leads to the ultimate question. Why not just put it in space? Like, space is a great place. You don't have to worry about things running into it there and no interference from things here on Earth. And he explained to us that, yes, actually, people are looking at trying just that, detecting gravitational waves in space. I work in pipelines for a living. I should know about excavation and mass converting of large pipelines. Yeah, because the sound would transmit through the ground a lot easier than it going through the air. That's certainly true. And you've got to deal with it. I'm imagining equipment to sort of so isolation is actually, seismic isolation is huge, huge for that. And the idea here is that, you know, the Earth, like even with this earthquake, there's supposed to be, which we have pendulums hanging from pendulums hanging from pendulums, <laughs> and at each stage we actuate on them with little um, electromagnetic drivers to be pushed on them to cancel out the forces that we observe at the tilting back and forth by microns to keep it from tilting or, or moving it. And despite of this, it's very challenging experimental problem. That sounds like my hard go on it, but you've described one. You've made some parts of my esoteric mechanics course very relevant. So, uh, active control of servos is a huge challenge. So, if you pay um, um, yeah, to see all the. They have a, a control room, like uh, it looks like when Homer Simpsons is <laughs> Simpsons. With screens and screens and screens showing uh, control rooms. Uh, how the sickness, whatever they offset the image, everything is held very carefully in place at all times. Nothing is allowed to move. But it's extremely complicated. Sounds really fascinating. Wouldn't that time delay also shift it out of alignment? 
Uh, so there is, in, and you can you can probably come yeah. this as well, a region of frequency space over which you can exert a control signal and effectively hold something in place. Some control signals are stable, so if you try to uh, balance like a home for a whole branch of engineering. So but you can do it. It's, it's sort of, you have to you have to build in the, those lead and lag factors to actually yeah. design around. I'm just more looking at with the sensitivity you're going for. It turns out, and this is another thing that you can probably you may be able to prove with control theory. It, it turns out that the best way to detect gravitational waves, the best way to conduct a low noise experiment, hold the test masses still. The optimal configuration so that light is coming out of the, this phase signal is the current that you must exert on your servo loop in order, in order to hold, to hold it in that configuration. So if you just let the thing move and, and, and watch how it moving, so you, it turns out that, that by orders of magnitude, the best thing you can do is hold it in a low noise state and then measure what it takes to hold it in a low noise state. And that is actually a signal. Talking about the main thing, just a little. Yeah. And then measuring what needs to be done to do that. That's uh, okay. a really clever way of actually, that's a really ingenious way of doing that, sort of optimizes it. It's kind of the backwards way of looking at something. But you literally couldn't do anything because the detector is uh, in order to do, which means that there, you have to, so the arms are not just, there's not just a mirror on one and there's a so the, You can only construct a favorite pearl cavity if you have a fixed length. So you, if you let it switch build up, it's effectively longer because yeah. light has bounced back and forth all yeah. the time. So the, the whole thing has to be a signal to lock it. But you can still see it by seeing what the servo So is it doing to make sure it is locked? It stays locked. So you'd have to have a complete way of doing it. You're yourself to a whole bunch of other factors and a lot of gravitational stuff I'd imagine. Yeah. So they, they still have a... So you have this test mass. Um, yeah. But you're not allowed to touch it. Um, they uh, have a spacecraft flying around a cube, which is your, your you have a satellite. It's a little bit more complicated than that. You, you do actually actuate on it, but you you basically want it to be flying around. You want to be floating, driving your ship around something that's just floating. So that is the Well, it's uh, you know it's the engineering risks are significant enough that. And it's one of submissions before they put three satellites up in space, yeah. you know, in irretrievable distances. But you know, so you got to hope everything's designed right. That's that's the even bigger problem with space is that you can't you can't bring it back. You know. Well, you can if you, you know. Well, we used to would fly somewhere where we, we wouldn't go and retrieve it. Stolen in there, right? Well, that, well, Hubble was a great success story, <laughs> and that was a disaster initially. Yes, you prepared so the Kepler mission. Yes, uh, wildly successful. Discovering just uh, today, usually, but wasn't able to complete its full uh, mission because it lost two gyroscopes. It's, it's using relative reference instead of the gyroscopes itself to basically give the stabilizer that it would have by having the gyroscopes. Like I can't in the, in the configuration. I can't do it. It's, it's, it's a this has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. I hope you enjoyed our CAPEG Science finale episode as we found out from Dr. Eric Thrain about how you explain difficult concepts in science as well as some of the technical limitations about building experiments in space. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>